This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio. Readings for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The title of the book, Red Sunset Drive, a ghost and a cop series. And joining me from near Des Moines, Iowa, is author Jan Walters. Thank you for joining me today, Jan. Thanks, Jay, for having me on your show. Well, this is uh, this is exciting because we have visited before, and you are becoming a, um, a well-recognized author. At least you will, if not by by now, in the near future, because this is the second in a series of a ghost and a cop series. Your main characters have stayed the same pretty much. Brett, detective detective Brett O'Shea, is your primary character. This one titled Red, Red Sunset Drive. Where is it located? Where is the story set? Uh, all the stories in the series uh, are set in Des Moines, Iowa. That has a uh, significance for you because you live in the area also, but your family history goes back to the 1800s as far as uh, being involved in uh, in uh, police uh, work, police duty. Correct, yeah. Um, my great-great-grandfather uh, was on the police department in the late 1800s. And my great-grandfather was uh, chief of detectives, chief of police in the 1940s and 50s. And then my husband served, and now my son is currently serving. That's incredible. The stories that they told you on a personal level, uh, how far back do you remember hearing the first story, or did they ever share any of their work with you? Well, when I was growing up, uh, my grandmother... Uh, was the one that really told me lots of stories about her father, who was the chief of detectives back in the 40s. And uh, uh, their their last name was Brophy, um, you know, strong Irish family. And um, my great-grandfather uh, was really uh, against uh, alcohol, you know, drinking. And so when uh, Prohibition was in effect he used to enjoy going around the city and breaking up stills and <laughs> he was a popular <laughs> guy I bet. Mm-hmm. alcohol <laughs> he was a popular popular fellow <laughs> um, yeah he was, i'm sure he was not popular <laughs> now did did any of the uh, scary parts of those stories that your grandmother relayed to you or were there any that she shared other than the fact that your grandfather was a kind of a character yeah um the basis of the ghost was really kind of based off my great-grandfather. Uh, my great-grandfather um, did not abide by the rules a whole lot. He was very independent, and he was suspended from the police department several times. Oops. And he even picketed the Des Moines Police Department, objecting to one suspension. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you mean he, he served them a, a a ticket, like a parking ticket or something of that nature, or something else? 
No, he picketed with oh, a picketed. sign marching around the sidewalk outside the police department. I have. I, I was. I was thinking of Barney Fife uh, ticketing, <laughs> ticketing someone in uh, Mayberry uh, with a similar storyline, except I didn't hear it correctly. So thank you for correcting that for me. The story, yeah. Red Sunset Drive, is that also located or or placed in Des Moines? It is. It is. And the reason it's set in Des Moines is our protagonist, Brett O'Shea, is a Des Moines police officer. The story itself, does it does it have a basis in reality, or are you just one of those creatives that can come up with all kinds of uh, twists and turns that will keep the reader occupied? Well, there are numerous scenes in here, um that are based on real-life adventures, scenarios that police officers have to deal with. Um, Talking about, you know, murder scenes or the type of humor that police officers sometimes uh, adopt to in order to cope with the violence or the horrific scene that they have to deal with. Sure. So... In, in reading the book, if someone from the Des Moines area were to read your book, are they going to pick up on anything specific, do you think? Or have you camouflaged it sufficiently that, uh, as they said in Dragnet, the uh, names have been changed to protect the innocent? Yeah. They, they will recognize um, some of the um, oh chase scenes when I talk about specific streets or parts of town. I reference a uh, bar in here where one of our new characters, uh, Dragos, um, who is a vampire, he is basically from the 1830s. He's basically a, a man that was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And um, he's kind of under the influence of a older nobleman who basically is a vampire Hmm. and when drago's wakes up he's in the current century in des moines iowa has no idea how he got here what's wrong with him and he believes that this need for blood is basically a curse of a witch well unfortunately he does wake up around Halloween in Des Moines. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And, um, of course, spots a witch walking down the street toward a very popular nightclub here in the Des Moines area. And then it kind of takes off from there. So that's one of the characters you changed the name, but it's based on a real character. Um, Dragos is um, a fictional character. Okay, I'll let you have that one. All righty. Okay. (laughs) I didn't know you had you have uh, so so much imagination and uh, integrity in your writing. You have over four hundred pages in this particular edition. Uh, your last your first novel was released not that long ago. How long did it take to complete the Red Sunset Drive? This one took me, mm, gosh, a little a little over a year just to finish the writing, and um, what I wanted to do differently in this book over compared to York Street was to get in the head of the characters a little bit more so the readers could kind of enjoy or go through the thought process with our two key protagonists, Michael and Brett. 
as well as the antagonist, uh, Victor. So there are a few more romantic scenes in this book as well, mm-hmm. and um, those were based on some of the comments from you know the previous readers and uh, the fans that follow the series. So I'm I'm very excited for this book. It was um, given the Rising Star Award from iUniverse. Phenomenal, and um, I think it really will provide a well-rounded set of emotions for the readers. I mean, you should be able to, you know, laugh, cry, be scared, even cheer in certain parts, so... Well, super. You, you. If if the reader or the listener were to look at your photo on the back of the uh, of the book, you would get the impression that you are a mild mannered lady. How would you? Uh, how did you come up with the violence and the other exciting scenes in the book? Was that a stretch for you, or do you just have one of those vivid imaginations because you live in a very unique part of the world? I think. Just because, you know, the horrific things maybe you see on TV or the news and the read about in the paper, you can take those types of real-life scenarios and take them a step further and delve into the paranormal aspect Mm -hmm. to even make things maybe even a little bit edgier a little bit more exciting and um i yeah people when they read this and you know there are some very explicit murder scenes and things that um you know people might be a little squeamish about but um i think it's a well-balanced book between those dark suspenseful scenes as well as the interaction between the characters and the various subplots that are in the book. Now, the under, underlying premise is unique in that the young detective is working with whom? The um, young detective continues to work with uh, his ghostly great-grandfather, Michael. And the twist with this book is um, Brett meets Dragos, the one of the vampires, and kind of befriends him, and um, they develop this very unique relationship and end up working together to try to catch the vampires that are murdering female prostitutes in the city. You've mentioned you're getting feedback from your first book that has inspired and given you some direction on Red Sunset Drive. What mm-hmm. is the general makeup of your audience? Is is it uh, balanced 50-50 with male-female, younger, older? How would you describe them? You know, it really is balanced. Um, I have readers, you know, in the 60s to 80 group, but yet when I go to book festivals and book signings, I have a lot of millennials and um, Gen Xers that will come up because they really like the paranormal aspect with the mystery and the suspense. 
Well, most mystery, so, most mystery and suspense writers have a deep-seated wish below the surface that a, maybe a Hollywood <laughs> producer might find this story and adapt it to the screen. Do you think that is something that you would hope to see in the future or might happen? I would, yes. I am definitely pursuing that angle. And um, to help that goal along, I recently hired a, a Iowa film company hmm. who produced a book trailer for York Street, and um, a lot of book trailers will have, um, oh, music and text, you know, a lot of images. Um, In my book trailer, we hired uh, Iowa actors to portray Brett O'Shea, uh, Michael, and the killer in York Street. And so we, they acted out a couple of key scenes as well as, you know, we kind of then flashed through some very suspenseful shots, um, hope, hopefully piquing people's interest of what else the book encompasses. Yes, and you use the word slashed through. I don't know if that's, um, what, what, maybe that's <laughs> something that's subliminal in your, your thinking. <laughs> what, what is the most... <laughs> yeah, What's the most exciting scene in in this uh, edition, Red Sunset Drive? Oh, my goodness. Um, There are several, but um, I guess one of my favorite scenes that I really enjoyed writing is when Drago's um, woke up kind of uh, in a cave down by the Des Moines River, and he is adventuring out. It's, you know, Halloween night, and um, he realizes, you know, something is seriously wrong with him, and he really does believe, because of the time period he was born in, that he was bewitched. And his that whole scene where he comes face-to-face with the current world, you know, and everything that just basically confuses him because he's never seen before. And then that is his first meeting with Brett O'Shea and um, a female private investigator who also plays a key role in this new book. That sounds like a wonderful scene for a movie trailer, should you ever produce a movie. Uh, Keep me in mind, I, I can be a background something or other. I can eat the food and and uh, enjoy the atmosphere. I'll do something. Anyway, the, okay. <laughs> this this book is titled Red Sunset Drive, a ghost and a cop series. My guest author, Jan Walters. Uh, Jan, you mentioned York Street trailer is out there, so if they do a search under Jan Walters, they should be able to locate mm-hmm. that and also your books. Is that correct? That's correct. My website is www.authorjanwalters.com. And the book trailer is there, as well as information on all the other books that have been published so far. Exciting. And they can also find this book at Amazon and other major booksellers by requesting it by your name, Jan Walters, and find out about uh, the other books you have produced. Again, the title is Red Sunset Drive, A Ghost 
and a cop series. Thank you for joining me today, Jan, and sharing your story. And best of luck. I see the future, and the future looks bright for you. Thank you for joining me and sharing your story. Well, thank you very much, Jay. I uh, really look forward to visiting with you. Fantastic. I'm certain that in the near future we'll have an opportunity to visit again and talk about the next installment in a ghost and a cop series. Thanks again, Jan, for joining me today. Okay, thank you. My pleasure for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting Magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors, all quilters just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. The title of the book, Customer Karma. Why stop at a one-night stand when you can have a lifetime relationship with your customers? And the author is Arjun Sen, and Arjun joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Arjun. Hi, good morning, Steve. Thank you for having me on the show. Great to have you with us. Now, customer karma, I think we all know, have somewhat of a feeling about karma, but I think it would be really good for you, from your point of view, to define it from your point of view. What is good karma? You know, my definition of karma comes from learnings from my grandma. She would tell me stories growing up, and one of the things she would instill in me is karma is all about what you do. It's all about the focus on the word is about action. And based on what you do, you get reaction back. So in some ways, it is very similar to Newton's third law of physics, which talks about every action has an equal and opposite reaction. But the only difference in the concept of karma is causality, which is you need to do great karma to your customers or in life, not because you expect the results, but just because it is the right thing to do. And by doing the right thing, good and right things happen. Absolutely. And you put yourself in the best position to get results back. I like what you say. Good karma is cultivated by heart felt good action. So people will really feel that sincerity from you. Totally, absolutely. And that's one of the things which are very important is if you and I were in a business dealing, for me to truly understand what Steve needs is incredibly important. And that's the reason for me to engage from my heart 
without that, it would become giving you service level one with option two mechanically, which does not touch you. So what you talked about is very important is good karma from the heart. Good karma from, from the heart. And I think we can all relate on a real basic level. We're talking about relationships. It doesn't matter whether it's business, family, friendship, of just the meeting that new person, uh, you know, in a in a, a store or at a restaurant or in a business setting. It's all about how we treat others. Absolutely, absolutely. So let's talk about this. I guess one thing of this real life relationship, customer relationship. You can't put business relationships away in some kind of a business box. It's a real-life relationship, as you emphasize. So tell us about the importance of first impression. So to me, just like if you meet a person, the same way with a business, when a customer comes in, the first instant the customer decides whether this relationship or there the brand has any connection or availability with the person. So that is incredibly important to manage because this happens spontaneously from deep inside. The same way in a date, the first impression, at the end of the first impression, you put the person in one of three buckets. One, what am I doing here? Versus, wow, I see amazing potential. Versus, I don't know, let's see how it goes. So the first impression is a great place to start. So it is a process needs to be carefully not only thought through but felt through that's what i'm hearing from you again it all comes from feelings from the heart absolutely you've written your book in a corporate language that we can relate to now there's many uh, business books out there and often as you put it they're really not relatable to what you're going through so you've got a, a vast Background. Tell us a little bit about your background so we can better understand how you can understand what we might go through. Yes, so to me, in the corporate world, I have been in the restaurant industry where every experience is created for every guest, one guest at a time. Started at Pizza Hut, then went to Boston Market, then Einstein Bagels, and then was at Papa John's. And after that, when I started corporate uh, consulting with corporate world, I worked with a lot of hospitality, retail, and restaurants. And in every case, what I learned is something that you related to earlier was when we focus on customer relations, we always started with customers. But over time, what I real realized is the relationship and the commonality about relationships, whether it is customers or human relationships every day, is similar. And once you get relationships, then it's very easy to see what you would do in the corporate world. And if I may give one quick example, once you see the relationship, if you were single, Steve, for a second, would you put an ad in a dating site with your picture with a coupon on it <laughs> Go out with me over the next two weeks, and I buy you a drink with a fine print up to $6. <laughs> so if you won't do that in a relationship, 
why are we trying to buy customer business in, in our transactions with these short-term gimmicks, which does not build the long-term relationship? So it's like you just pointed out in the restaurant world, uh, every time a new customer walks through, that's a new person, a very unique individual, and they need to be treated that way. Absolutely. So to me, I look at marketing is very simple. It is an invitation from the heart. And if marketing is an invitation, and let's say if my family invited Steve, your family to our place, I could then greet you in one of two reactions. One is, wow, Steve, buddy, I can't believe you made it so excited. Or the other reaction could be, really? You're back again? I can't believe it. So to me, the whole thing goes with connection from the heart and how do you respond? Because that's what the customer cares about. So it's about customer satisfaction. Yes, it is. What's the best way then to develop this long-term relationship when you're going to avoid these gimmicks, as you pointed out? What is the best way for having this continual relationship that literally is going to bring back the customer? And, of course, the bottom line, as you pointed out, and I think we all understand this, it's about the cash register ringing. Absolutely. You got it right at the end. It's all about the cash register, how many times you open and how much money you put in. And if you start right there, the valuation of a customer makes us all change our perspective. If I had a coffee shop and you came in and asked for a free refill, and on the board it says $2 for a refill, I will hesitate giving you the refill. But on the other side, if I right away sit, pause for a second and realize Steve comes twice a week, every time spends you know, approximately $10, which is $20 a week, approximately $1,000 a year, which is $5,000 a year, the light bulb goes on. I realize my whole business success depends on you, Steve, which means instead of now making you look at the board, which says refills are $2, I ask you to sit down by saying, Steve, would you just sit down for a second? I'll brew a fresh pot of coffee and bring it to you with the condiments. Because I really think that whole attitude shift changes. And I think once you feel it, you don't need user manual or anything else. You really need to put one customer at a time and business becomes incredibly successful. So you are using real-life business scenarios to point out how to do this in your book. Absolutely. And to me, that's the part about the book is you would not find 23 laws of customer satisfaction because, you know, those rules and laws don't work. The book is more about you calling your corporate buddy who shares his success and failure stories and I emphasize failures are equally important from success. So each person who reads the book will have their own takeaway on how to use it in their world. So there's no one solution, but I'm just sharing my experiences from different corporate experiences. Well, I want to read a couple of, of, of folks who have read your book and have given you uh, quite a great review. One said... 
Arjun has a brilliantly simple way of looking at a business through the eyes of its customers. If more brands could do the same, true customer loyalty would be less elusive. That is, uh, I think, eye-opening, if you (laughs) pardon me, but through the eyes of its customers. That's the way we have to look at our business. Yeah, first of all, you know, I'm really flattered with the review and if I take everything I've talked about in the book, to me it's all about one reader. If one reader likes it and feels that he or she got value from the book and takes time to write this review, I really think you know, the journey I started, I have accomplished and I'm really fortunate and grateful that at least one person feels this way. And that, I think, is the power in every business, is one person at a time giving them what they need of actual true value that connects to them. Another reviewer said, after after reading Customer Karma, you will find it impossible to think about your customer interactions in the same old ways. It's more about, it's much more than just the pleasant hello and uh, how's everything and is everything uh, well with your product that we've shared with you. It's it's really, I guess it's a, as you've put it already, it's not a formula. It's a real life interaction with sincerity coming from the heart. I, I guess that's the best way, as we've already pointed out. How else can you talk about it? Absolutely. And that's the part, if you look at, is in a relationship, no two days are the same, which means if you are living a relationship with your significant other with a user manual, it just doesn't work. This is not a train that goes online. It just flies anywhere and everywhere. There are everyday challenges, and that's the part where the reflection from the heart comes out. And the second thing, if I point out to this particular review, what the person reflected so well is once you get the commonality between relationships and when I told you about the example of using a coupon in dating you were amused because you know we don't do that so I really think that is the power is once each person in our own way get the parallel of relationships I really feel this would be life-changing for people because they cannot go back to the old way of customer service using a user manual. And as you point out, your book will not give the reader one road map for all situation. Instead, it is sure to trigger thoughts on what you can do differently. So that is your ultimate goal, is to help people get out of their comfort zone and start looking at customers in a much more sincere, heartfelt way. And absolutely. And I have fun doing it because, think, if you... When you read the review of the two, you know, individuals who, it just hit, you know, hit hit me right deep in my heart. I just felt something amazing. And that is so addictive. So to me, I think that's exactly what each person, once they go a little bit outside their regular routine jobs and touch customers' lives, first of all, the values of the reward and the returns that they would get is immense. But more importantly, it just adds excitement and meaning to jobs, which I don't think exist in a routine 
you know, just coming in, open a cash register, follow schedule A, B, C, D. It just doesn't, it's not there in that particular of a mechanical robot-like job. The title of the book, Customer Karma. We've been talking to the author, Arjun Sen. Arjun, what's the best way to get your book? You can get the book at Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com. It's also available at iTunes or anywhere you can get uh, digital copies of the book. You can also check the website of the book, Customer Karma, Karma with a K, CustomerKarma.org. CustomerKarma.org. Well, thank you so much, Arjun, for joining us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Steve, for having me on the show. I truly appreciate this. You have a great day. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. When your focus is to lose weight or maintain your present weight, exercising effectively to burn the most calories is crucial. You want to give yourself every advantage to burn as many calories as possible. One good tip is to do your strength training exercises standing up so you can keep your heart rate up Another tip is to perform multi-joint exercises when you can. For example, as you're doing a forward lunge, add bicep curls while you're coming up from the lunge. Another example is to execute a wide squat. And as you're coming up from the squat, perform a shoulder press. By doing these multi-joint exercises, you're putting more demands on your body, keeping your heart rate up, and working more muscles at the same time. The goal is to burn the most calories during that workout. I'm Annette Hammond. To hear other fitness and weight loss tips, visit our website at AnnetteHammond.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. The title of the book, The Truth Won't Help Them Now. And the authors are Joan Hunter and Stephen Kobos. And Joan joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Joan. Hello. Great to have you with us. You're talking to us from the high Sierras where there's lots of snow. That's correct. Lots of snow. (laughs) More snow than you can handle. But you can handle talking about the truth won't help them now. We'll talk more about the title in in a bit, but kind of set the stage about this tale of murder and gangland intrigue based on some real people. And it, of course, it's a fictional account. It's but it's still uh, based on some real life stories. Correct? That's correct. Most of the people we know or know of, and uh, that's what makes it interesting. Of course, we added a few things of our own to uh, pep it up a little. I like to say. Fluff it up. <laughs> well, you that's the great uh, license you have as a fiction writer. Yes, and, and we do enjoy. Uh, do you want me to tell you something about how we happen to be writing this book together? Please. Um, Stephen Kobos is my son. <laughs> I like to say that, and people think this little kid, he's 60. So... <laughs> and has been a lawyer and has worked in the courts. And so most of the information we have is real. And then he uh, called his father, who was at once a deputy sheriff, so that we get all of the um, 
the procedure is correct, so there's there are no things that aren't absolutely correct uh, in the book. We uh, looked up every uh, every street, every building, everything that there, and we put it in 1939, uh, just before World War II began. Um, and what this was at the end of. Um, the depression and there were people who were very poor and there was a lot of gambling going on and surprisingly uh, there was a, a, a fleet of ships that were parked uh, that were anchored uh, outside the three mile limit and in 1939 beginning of the year Earl Warren was elected or he took office as the Attorney General and he wanted to get rid of all of the gambling and all of the boats outside the limit and all of the prostitution and the dog races and the cockfights. He wanted to get rid of all that stuff. And um, so uh, so he, he started, but of course there was a lot of uh, resistance because people love to gamble. And the wrecks, the, the uh, book, that the uh, boat, that the ship that we're talking about, was making $300,000 a month gambling off the coast of Santa Monica. And he wanted to stop all that. So there was a lot of um, stuff going on at the time. And, of course, the story hinges around, at least it begins with a body, a bullet-riddled body of an accounting clerk from a gambling ship washes up under the Santa Monica Pier, and then, of course, we have the investigation. And because the gangsters are all fighting each other to get a bigger share of the pot, right? That's right. And the surprising thing that you don't think about now is that Many of the officials, the um, uh, the uh, policemen, the sheriffs, the um, people in the city council, they were all on the take because people were left over from pro- prohibition. All these people were on uh, were left over from prohibition, and they had uh, networks already set up so they could get the illegal booze in. And now they're doing the same thing to get the illegal money in. And so then the people who, who were from the East sent out Bugsy Siegel, Benjamin Siegel, to join in uh, help uh, the owner of the Rex to uh, get funnel money back East. And uh, once Bugsy Siegel got out here, he liked it so well. He wanted to be in movies and all that kind of stuff. And so they were pretty hard uh, pressed to uh, get people out. So you've got a lot of municipal authorities involved in this, police and district attorneys and uh, uh, investigative teams. So this, this pair of serial killers is on the loose, and Cliff Thomas, tell us about him. He's the Los Angeles County Deputy District Attorney. He's one of the prominent characters in your book. Yes, Cliff Thomas uh, is an attorney, and uh, he is Chinese. He's half Chinese, and his street name is the Chinaman. 
Um, and he's an excellent district attorney, except that he's uh, he's on the borderline. Part of the time he's completely good guy, and part of the time he's uh, partly bad. Now, one of his clients is a woman named Zoe Wolfolk, who is a business consultant, it says on her uh, card, but in actuality, she's a psychic, and she's a well-known psychic. She has uh, uh, many people who are her clients. Among them, one of her clients is uh, Jean MacArthur, the wife of Arthur Douglas MacArthur, uh, and she's the one who said to Jean MacArthur at one time, I don't know when this is going to happen, Jean, but I know that your husband is going to be involved in one of the greatest explosions known to mankind. And uh, then, of course, they don't know what it is then in 1939, but we do now that it was the atomic bomb she was predicting. Hmm. Well, certainly the setting of that time adds to the edge of your plot line. So let's talk about, let's see, I've got uh, a long list of characters. You're good at creating characters. <laughs> so let's talk about Louis Gomez. Oh, Lou. Lou, sorry. <laughs> sorry. sorry. Louis. Louis Gomez. Louis Gomez, he's... Um... He's about 50 years old. He's of Mexican descent. He's a, a deputy uh, a, a, a policeman. He's a detective, and he has a partner named uh, Randy Williams. And the two uh, are off trying to um, find out who killed uh, the uh, guy under the pier. And... Uh, they get involved with a woman named uh, Dorothy, who is the daughter of one of the gangsters. And the, da- the gangster lives up in the Kent- in Kentner Hills on Kentner Avenue. And uh, she, this woman, Dorothy, is very beautiful, very sexy, uh, very interested in men in general. And she happens to really be in love with as much as she can be for the kind of person she is with Randy. And so Lou doesn't know that Randy and Dorothy are friends. And so Lou's out trying to find out what happened and how uh, how Dorothy got involved. But as it happens, Dorothy uh, has a beautiful car, and she picks up uh, the guy who got killed and drives him out to Malibu in this beautiful car. And then, of course, eventually he gets thrown into the water and washes up under the Santa Monica Pier. And Dorothy, uh, we don't know very much about her at first, but we realize that she has a, this beautiful car. It turns out to be a Bugatti. And it, there's only three Bugattis in the whole Southern California one belongs to a regular guy, one belongs to George Rapp, the movie star, and the other one belongs to Dorothy. And so they, as soon as they found out that she was the one, one of the people who had the uh, Bugatti, they knew that she was involved in the murder. But until that, 
till then, people lied about who owned the car and where it was going. And it, it was the fastest car at the time. It was capable of 120 miles an hour. And so what she did is she uh, she left, she killed, well, uh, the body was washed up under the shore, but she was gone. She got on a plane at Douglas Aircraft in Santa Monica and uh, flew to Mexico. And she had a rendezvous there in Mexico. And then she drove home in her Bugatti and did whatever she was going to do. And then she flew back, drove back to Mexico and then flew back. And she gets picked up at the airport by... uh, Cliff Toms, and so he thinks that she's in Mexico all this time, and yet the other people who are involved know that she's in in Santa Monica, but they think she's in Mexico. We don't like to have too complicated. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got a lot of twists and turns in this mystery <laughs> novel, and of course, these all the characters in this plot line are trying to distinguish the lies from the truth, but as you put it, unfortunately, they're all about to discover that even the truth won't help them now. <laughs> That's true. Uh, I, and actually, there are two plot lines I'll just briefly go over. Uh, what happens is the people from back east send a guy... To, uh, we call him Nicky, Nicky the animal, send a guy to put an end to Earl Warren's uh, uh, efforts to end the war. Um, but um, so but he turns out to be a killer himself. And so there's Nicky the animal who is killing women, but he's while well, he's hanging around waiting for Earl Warren to show up so that he could kill Earl Warren. But in the meantime, the two don't know each other yet until the end, when then they realize that the truth won't help them now because they all are together. The interesting thing about the book is we have we, we love writing little kind of jokes and stuff. One of my favorite sections is when they first get this body off of the... Uh, they uh, off of the uh, out of the water. Uh, they notice that he has uh, tattoos on him, and so they have one of the tattoos says thirteen and a half, and the other says shell Q, S H E L Q. And so uh, then the and the uh, detectives tried to figure out what that means. They discovered that thirteen and a half means uh, ten. Ten jurors, one judge, and half a chance. <laughs> and shell cue, they do a lot of investigating what that could possibly mean. And finally, they discover that it means S for San Quentin and Q for San Quentin and hell in the middle. Hell in San Quentin. So we have little little stories like that. And when they discover that it's hell in Jan- San Quentin, the guy says, well, that's juvenile. And the guy says, we're not dealing with geniuses here. <laughs> well, as we've already said, it's a fast-paced tale of murder and gangland intrigue. The title, The Truth, 
won't help them now. And we've been listening to Joan Hunter. She's one of the authors, along with her son, Stephen Kobos. Joan, what's the best way to get your book? Uh, Amazon.com. Very good. Well, we appreciate you joining us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you so much for the interview. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.